Hello. Thank you for downloading this sermon by Pastor Casey Helenchek. Casey is a missionary pastor with Village Missions. Currently, Casey and his wife Hope and their six children serve the Bangor Community Church and the surrounding area of Bangor, California. Village Missions exists to glorify Jesus Christ by developing spiritually vital community churches in rural North America. We now invite you to open your Bibles and journey with us. Okay, we'll get one after the service then. Uh, All right, well, if you would all grab your Bibles with me and turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Here we go. Uh, If you do not have a Bible or if you are in need of a Bible, please come see me after the service and we will get one um, into your hands. Jesus of Nazareth, whose life we've been following in Luke's gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, he is and was the Messiah, the long-awaited, long-prophesied Christ. He showed this through his teachings. He showed it through the miracles that he performed. He showed it through the Old Testament scriptures that they all attested to him. But the people of Israel, specifically the religious leaders of the day, uh, who, by the way, knew scripture in, backwards and forwards. They knew scripture better than any of us here today. Uh, they looked through their own lens. They looked and they saw scriptures and interpreted them through what they already were expecting to see. And with that, they came to have a very clear set of expectations for how, from how they read the Bible, for how they read the scriptures. And this Jesus fella didn't meet those expectations. Not even a little bit. Well, neither did what he was about to say, what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to go ahead and read this morning's passage. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 28. I will, as always, be reading out of the English Standard Version. I encourage you to grab your Bible, read along in your preferred translations. Luke 21, 5 through 28. He, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records these words of Jesus. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Thus says the word of God. There's a lot in there, isn't there? First thing we see, the temple in Jerusalem. Temple in Jerusalem is being admired. Mark's gospel specifies that it is the disciples that are doing the admiring. Uh, And the temple was well worth the admiration and the awe that is being given to it. Uh, In addition to a religious meeting place, in addition to it being a house of worship, uh, it was a grand tourist attraction. Uh, It was an architectural marvel. Uh, It was at the center of everything God related to the Jewish people. And it was, that is where God dwelt among them. That is where his presence dwelt on earth. It was a symbol of his greatness and his presence, and sadly, of the greatness of the Jewish people. And it was beautiful. Even in the the middle of a 50-year renovation, it wouldn't be finished until 63 AD. It was a sight beyond anything else in the ancient world. Ancient historian Josephus describes the temple this way. He says, The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered in gold plates, which, when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholder, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them, from a distance they looked like a mountain of snow. The temple was the epitome of of grandeur and of security. It was four football fields wide and and five football fields long. I think if I remember right, it was nine, the walls were nine feet thick. It was amazing. It was no wonder that the disciples were were marveling at and wondering at at the temple. Now, part of the issue was that it wasn't just a sign of who God was, but the the people looked at it as a sign of who they were as well. Part of the issue is that the Jewish people, the physical nation, the physical seed of Abraham, thought that solely and simply because they were the physical seed, that they would be eternally and continually blessed. And that they deserved God's blessing 
and protection and that they deserved it simply because they were born into Israel. And because of that, and directly because of that, they saw no need of Jesus as a savior, not as an eternal soul, spiritual savior. They wanted a national military savior. They were already saved in the spiritual sense. They needed a physical savior here and now to deal with what was going on in front of them. And Jesus is, is speaking against that, that hubris right here. He's, that, that hubris was a direct reason why they rejected Jesus. Jesus tells the disciples, this temple, as grand and as great as it is, as large and as well built as it is, as wondrous and as glorious as it is, as, as, as much as you guys see it as a symbol of the Jewish nation, it won't stand forever. The nation of Israel won't stand forever. The day will come when the temple will be destroyed and not one of these massive stones will be left on one another. The destruction will not only be total, but it will be complete. This would have been a complete and total shock to those who heard it. It would have been borderline blasphemy or heresy. As we see in the other other Gospels, the disciples were shocked at this. They take Jesus aside. They try to get some alone time to, to try to figure out what he's talking about. And so they went up to the Mount of Olives and they were basically overlooking Jerusalem, overlooking the temple. And they say, Jesus, what are you talking about? When is this going to happen? What is going to happen? We know sometimes you, you talk in ways that we don't understand. Help us to understand when should we be looking for this and what should we be looking for? They didn't probably didn't understand if he was talking literal, spiritual, physical, metaphorical, whatever. Um, we've seen them in the Gospels be confused because Jesus is speaking one way when they expected another. And, and it's these questions that they're asking directly from Jesus saying the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. They're asking when and what should we be looking for? And that's important because we need to remember that this is the context that Jesus, of what Jesus is about to say. From verses 8 through 24, Jesus is answering their direct question. Jesus is speaking of the not too distant future. Many people also think that he's weaving in uh, elements of the distant future, of the, the, the end times. Uh, but there's no word, wordly indication of him changing tone or subject as he's talking here. Uh, Jesus starts by warning against false teachers and, and false teachers of two very specific veins. He's very specific about the false teachers he's warning against in this context. He's warning, of the, warning the disciples of those who will claim to be the returning Christ. I am Jesus is what they will say. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the reincarnation, the whatever. Um, you know, we... We see, have seen many of them over recent history. They saw a lot of them in the time of the disciples and the apostles. Don't listen to them. You will know when it's me. And it will not be the person standing up with a crowd around them saying, look at me, I'm Jesus. That's not going to be who I am. The other group is those who will claim that Jesus had already come back. Again, we see, we see a lot of both of these groups in in. in in our history, recent history, but especially the first century. 
Paul writes to the Thessalonians because some of them thought that they had already missed Jesus coming back. They thought that it had already happened. And so they were getting depressed. They were getting frustrated. They were getting whatever. And so that's why Paul was writing to the Thessalonians. So these people are already popping up right after Jesus was buried and resurrected and ascended. Jesus says, when you see these people, when you see these false teachers, mark and avoid them because they will be popping up all over the place. He says, wars and armed conflicts will be present and they need to be present before this will take place. That doesn't mean the end is near. This is, this is life in a fallen and sinful world. I saw one researcher who, uh, who tried to tally it up, and I didn't write the exact number down, but of all of the thousands of years of human civilization, there had been something like 230 years of peace. That's it, out of many thousands of years of human civilization. So there, there, Jesus' point, and, and what that, that, that point is making, is the fact that there are wars is not in and of itself a sign of the end being near. This is a reality of life, and it will be going on. Uh, around as you guys are waiting for the temple, as you guys are waiting for what we're talking about, Jesus is telling the disciples, there will be wars happening. Rome was by its nature a nation of war. Peace through tyranny was, their, was their, the way they worked. They fought and they conquered in their quest to have the nations that they conquered be calm and peaceful. Uh, A state of war was a way of life. And even if it was not an active warfare going on, the Jewish people were living under military occupation. And they were so constantly aware of of, of war and military action, of the chance of it breaking out any day. Uh, That would have been just the way of life, how they lived. And and it did on occasion. Uh, We've talked about some of those issues. And Jesus is showing another one of those times uh, that this is going to happen. And, and as Jesus continues in verses 10 through 17, you know, nation against nation, earthquakes, persecution, both from re- Jewish religious leaders and from the Caesars, the, the Roman military, all of this stuff, all of these things took place in history between Jesus's ascension and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Rome was fighting against other nations. And one of the, the most historically Devastating earthquakes took place in what is now Turkey in 61 AD. Pompeii famously erupted two years later in 63. We talked a few weeks ago about the relationship between Israel and Rome becoming increasingly volatile. Their conflicts were increasing and becoming more intense. This combined with the fact that the the first Christians were Jewish and were, were going to cause national trouble by refusing to worship and bow to Caesar meant that Rome was going to continue to persecute and come down hard on Israel, and especially this, as they saw it, new sect of, of Judaism. They would especially, this would especially show itself during the reign of Nero in the 60s. Jesus also warns his disciples that they would face persecution, uh, as, as he is, as he says this, from the religious leaders, from the Sanhedrin. Uh, we see this in the book of Acts, how often Peter and John got put before the courts uh, the, with Saul leading the stoning of Stephen, uh, with Paul after his conversion himself being imprisoned and set before kings and governors and the such. 
Jesus is saying things are going to be and they're going to look and feel very bad. Things are going to occur which can, which can be scary, which can make it look like there's no hope. But God knows and he uses all of this. Trouble for the church will always mean the opportunity to bear witness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Jesus says it's going to get bad in this physical world. Some of you will die, but I will be with you and the Holy Spirit will be with you and you will not lose your eternal life. You might have physical trouble that sin in this, of, of sin in this world and, and when all of this is going on, you will be persecuted. When the wars take place, when natural disasters happen, again, your life can be in danger through all of these things that are taking place. But through your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life that will never be able to be taken from you. Now, essentially, all that Jesus had said so far in this was in in lead up to what he says in verses 20 through 24. All of the previous parts were to take place between, again, his ascension and the destruction of Jerusalem, which he now starts describing, which takes place in 70 A.D., Roman military laid siege to Jerusalem. They would surround Jerusalem, cut them off from all outside goods, services, and food and water. Now, early Christians remembered Jesus' warnings. Flee from Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains. The, The instinct of people in that time would be when trouble starts, flee to the cities. They had gates. They had walls. They had protection. They had security. So flee to the cities. Jesus says, don't do that. Run. Go flee from the cities up to the mountains. Get out of Jerusalem when you see these things happening so that you will not be caught in there. Jerusalem was cut off. There was no food. To the point of cannibalism taking place. To the point that nursing mothers had no milk to feed their their babies. These are are things that are are documented in, 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 in Roman history, in Jewish history. That, that took place then. Even the, uh, eventually, the Roman military, after having cut off Jerusalem from everything around it, uh, was led by General Tacitus. He invaded Jerusalem. He laid waste to the entire city. Jerusalem was trampled by the Gentiles. And enough destruction was done to the temple that when they went to try to, to plunder, to gather all the gold plating, whatever else they could get from the temple, well, the gold had melted down and had melted into the walls of the temple. So they took apart every stone off of every other stone as Jesus prophesied in order to try to get the gold and whatever other goods they could get. All of this occurred in 70 AD, less than 40 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Less than 40 years after he said these words that we're reading today. Seven years after the renovation of the temple was complete. They finally had the, the, the temple fully renovated, fully completed, ready. And, 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 and what a marvelous sight that would have been. Seven years later, there was nothing left of it but rubble and ruins. This was not some far off one day at the end type of thing. This is, is biblical history and recorded extra biblical history. This was... We see when Jesus says, some of you will not pass before you see this. This is what he's talking about. And in telling the disciples that this was coming, he gave them four points, four don'ts. 
while looking for and experiencing these things. He said, don't be led astray. Talk about that. Mark, find the false teachers, mark and avoid them. Don't be led astray. Don't be afraid. I am with you till the ends of the earth, he'll say before he is ascended. He says, I will be with you. I will bring you through this. He says, don't miss the opportunity to witness. You're going to have more opportunity than you ever wanted to be in front of people who are persecuting you for your faith. And you will have the chance. The Holy Spirit will give you words to speak up and to say what needs to be said. And don't give up. Persevere and endure. For you have eternal life waiting for you. Through all of this, I didn't write it down, so I'm going to misquote it, of course, but I'm reminded of Romans where it says, I do not consider these problems that are going on here uh, even, even worth considering compared to the, the enduring greatness and, and wonder that I'm going to go to. I'm, I'm paraphrasing that because I don't remember the exact phrasing, but, um, but Paul says that. And that's what I think of when, when, when Jesus is saying, don't give up here. That, that you, you endure and you persevere because of what you have waiting for you on the other side. Now here, Jesus does transition. The, the time that he is referring to, starting in verse 25, he does transition till that end, to that, that thing that we are waiting for, that hope that we have. The temple in Jerusalem was a type, a type that was pointing and looking forward to Jesus. Uh, as well, the temple's destruction was a type pointing forward towards the final judgment. These were things that, that, that are looking forward to Jesus and what he does and who he is. And Jesus tells his disciples, without giving a lot of specifics, very purposely, stuff is going to happen. There's going to be major universal signs, uh, major, major things going on, and then all of a sudden, he will return. The second coming will be instant. It will be glorious. It will be powerful. And it will be unmissable. Jesus is clear here. He's clear in Mark 13. He's clear in the other Gospels when he, he has this, this discourse. Every time he speaks of his return, he's clear. He says, don't focus on the when. Focus on me. Focus on looking up and looking at me. Focus on how you respond to what's going on around you and persevere through it. Most of all, focus on me. Kent Hughes writes, we see that Jesus was not interested in giving date setting details, but encouraging his own to be steadfast and faithful until he returns. And that's the whole key to this, this, this whole section of scripture is Jesus in verse 28, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Focus on Jesus, look up at him. Look to him. He gets you through it all. He brings you through it all. He is your redemption. I saw one note on on the word redemption. It says, this word means deliverance on payment of a price. Jesus paid the price at Calvary. And here he looks forward to the final fulfillment of what deliverance means. So we look at all of this as a whole, verses 5 through 28. And what do we see? We see the reason of the events of verses 6, six through 24, the, the leading up to and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, the reason for those events occurring is because of the rejection of Jesus as the Christ. Israel as a corporate and national group, which is how they expected to receive their salvation and their blessing, 
rejected Jesus as the Son of God. And so Jesus poured, or so God poured his wrath and his judgment on Jerusalem. But all as individuals will have the chance to accept Christ. Jesus is the person, the place, the thing in which we place our trust and our hope. The Jewish people as individuals had every chance, and many of them did, to accept Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. They are the ones that listened. They are the ones that heard what Jesus was saying. They are the ones that heard what the apostles would, would share and spread. They are the ones that, that would see Paul in front of Caesar, Peter and John in front of the courts, see Stephen being stoned, hear the words, hear the witness that they presented of the gospel, and they would see Jesus as the Christ. Many individuals did. The corporate nation would not. Jesus is the person, the place, the thing in which we place our trust and our hope. The temple in Jerusalem, which had been the dwelling place of God, is destroyed and no longer exists. It no longer matters. Instead, God sent Jesus, who is the true and eternal temple. Jesus points this out when he talks, uh, talks about destroying the temple and then rebuilding it in three days. He's talking about himself, his death and resurrection. Now there he's speaking uh, a combination of literal and metaphorical because he is the temple, but also metaphorical knocking down and rebuilding. So that's kind of why the disciples might have been a little confused at the beginning. Okay, which way is he talking about this? But Jesus is clear that, that he is what all of this is pointing to. He is the fulfillment of all of it. This trust in him gives eternal life to every individual, Jew or Gentile, every individual who believes in him. He is your redemption and he draws near. So we are to look up and look to him, to straighten up, to lift our heads and to, to, to rejoice in our, our redemption, to not give up, to not be led astray, to not be afraid, to not miss our opportunity to witness and to remember that he is the source of all of it. Charles Wesley, the, the famous hymn writer, writes in one of his hymns, says, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia. God appears on earth to reign. It's what we are looking forward to. That's what, we, it's what gets us through these, these things that are going to be happening that have been happening for all of history. It's what got uh, the, the early Christians through that period up until and, and after the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, would have felt like the literal end of the world to them. Jesus said, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. There's a reason it's happening. Look to me and listen to me. The fall of Jerusalem, it's God's wrath poured out on those who rejected him. God has promised wrath on those who reject his son. He's also promised that all who follow Christ, all who trust him, all who are his, will not face the wrath of God. However, in the words of Philip Ryken, there is one exception, however. Once there was a godly man who trusted in all the promises of God, but still suffered the full weight of God's wrath against sin. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus asked if there was any way that he could avoid the cross where he suffered God's curse against our sin. 
But there is no other way. No way for us to be saved except through Jesus. There was no way of escape from the wrath of God. He suffered what we deserved so that we could be safe in him. We are in his hands because we have responded by faith to his death on the cross and to his resurrection. God's grace poured out on those who are covered in Christ's blood. The blood of the lamb come to take away the sins of the world. He absorbed God's wrath so that we could be spared from the wrath of God. He condescended from heaven, still God, born a man, a human baby, lived the perfect sinless life that we needed to and were unable to live. He paid the penalty, paid the wages for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. He paid that penalty with his life in an act of pure, perfect love. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And before he did this, Jesus told us to remember this, to celebrate it as often as we get together. And so we do. We celebrate communion every month, the first Sunday of the month. We remember and we follow the commands of Jesus that he gave his disciples during the Last Supper. Luke's gospel records the Last Supper. He writes of Jesus telling his disciples, chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, he says, Luke writes, He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we're going to celebrate communion here this morning. We're going to do it in remembrance of, excuse me, in remembrance of Jesus and what he had done. Paul speaks about communion in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and just as a, as a reminder, every time communion is for believers. It is for those who are following Christ in remembrance for what Christ has done for us. It is not a way to become a believer. It is not a way to earn God's grace. It is not a way to, to have sins forgiven. There's nothing magical in that sense about it. There's something very magical in the heart of a believer who takes communion, however. So communion does not save. And so if you are not a follower of Christ, we do ask that you continue. You pass the elements right past you. Uh, we have individual cups that contain the wafer which symbolizes Jesus' broken body on the cross. We have, it also contains a juice, which symbolizes the shed blood of Christ. Uh, and we are going to, myself and Mike are going to pass those out. Uh, we are going to come together as a family. We will first do the, the wafer. We will second, after that, as a family, we will do the juice. So I will go ahead and um, one of us will... After we pass them out, one of us will pray for the wafer. We will do that. The other will pray for Thank you again for listening and joining us on our journey through God's Word. If you've listened this far and believe in our ministry or us as a family, please consider partnering with us. We would be honored to know that you are praying with and for us. If you feel compelled to give through financial support, information on how and where to give can be found at com slash giving. Thank you and God bless.